Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This week I'm joined by Jimmy Flat and Lydia Parker, partners in life and co-founders of Hunters of Color. I'm actually still in Oregon right now, headed to uh, Montana, but uh, I just left Lydia and Jimmy's house. I spent probably a week with Jimmy, probably half of it in California, and then we ended up in uh, the Willamette River Valley of Oregon. We had some phenomenal hunts, just just an absolute blast, man. And the hunts were fantastic, but even better than the hunting, if that's even possible was the conversations we had uh we ate some really great meals uh and just talked about a bunch of stuff that you know i don't uh i don't get to discuss that much as a father in little rock arkansas uh who is slowly or perhaps rapidly approaching dotage so uh, we have a really wide-ranging conversation, as is par for the course on this podcast. But I think we hit a lot of important topics. We talk about uh, the nonprofit Hunters of Color that Lydia and Jimmy run. Um, we talk about generational differences and approach to common interest. And we talk a little bit about the turkey hunts that Jimmy and I had, uh, had just finished up when we recorded this. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Lydia Parker and Jimmy Flat. Hello and welcome back to the podcast, folks. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Jimmy Flat and Lydia Parker, uh, both founders and facilitators of greatness over at Hunters of Color, a nonprofit uh, based here in the what Willamette River Valley of beautiful Western Oregon. Jimmy and I have been on a journey of sorts low these last 10 days or so and we've been turkey hunting and having a really good time doing it first in california and then up in oregon we've done a mix of public and private land birds uh lots of different methods but i think if you count the bird that uh jimmy got the two days before two like a couple days before i got to california we've done nine birds uh, in Oregon and California, and it's been a fantastic time. So, uh, I thought that what we might do on this podcast is maybe I'll tell a little turkey hunting story or Jimmy, or I both will tell, you know, maybe one of our favorite memories from this last trip, cause it's been so fun. And, uh, then we can talk a little bit more about, uh, hunters of color and what these folks are doing over here professionally. And, uh, We'll talk about some generational stuff, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, anyway, so Jimmy Flat, 
thanks for being on the podcast and thank you so much for uh making this happen dude i've i feel like i've learned like a lifetime maybe not a lifetime but I've, i feel like i got a decade's worth of turkey uh knowledge by watching you and hunting with you the last uh, week and a half or so well thanks for uh thanks for pushing me to drive down to california and, and do this with you it's been uh it's been a ton of fun it's been a, a good break for me i'm happy to push you to do things for me even more jimmy if that's what if that's what you're looking for because we could do we could do a three-month turkey tour I don't know if we'll get approval from uh, <laughs> yeah, so Lydia over here. <laughs> there's, there's looks, there's looks coming my way over here. Yeah, man. But so you want to kind of describe just for folks a little bit about what we've been doing and uh, maybe, maybe uh, you know, relate a tale. Yeah. So uh, I guess this all kind of started last year when when you reached out and we became little pen pals, I guess, <laughs> and. Uh, I invited you out to come turkey hunting in Oregon and uh, you you went out on a trip with uh, Sitka and then you came out to, to Oregon um, you're telling me that you're a little uh, you're a little scarred from yeah I was know. rattled man I missed that turkey <laughs> in that on that Kansas trip uh, and I was you know I was just like oh my god I, I can't even kill a turkey at 12 yards with a shotgun like what's wrong with me <laughs> Uh, yeah, man. So there was, I was definitely, definitely looking for some redemption when I came up here. Yeah. So, uh, you met us here in Oregon, uh, at our place and I set up a few properties for us to go and hunt. And, um, uh, I think it was day one. We doubled up on, on, uh, some spring turkeys here in yeah. the Valley. And then, uh, I believe it was day two. We went out with, uh, uh our other co-founder, Thomas. Thomas fell asleep sitting on a tree, cutting logs right next to us. Uh, and then we didn't get anything that day. Then the next day you shot your second bird. Yeah, man, it was, dude, it was a super fun trip, man. And we got to be like buddies, you, me, and Lydia. Uh, Lydia is also here, but uh, still still preparing herself to, to be on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, man, and then, yeah, so we I talked about wanting to do even a bigger deal, and, uh, yeah, so we talked about doing uh, California first, where mm -hmm. you're from, and then making our way up to Oregon here, and then I had last year I made the connection for Eastern Oregon, which is where I'm going to be heading off to tomorrow or the next day. Uh, yeah, so anyway, man, so we, we, we end up meeting back this year, uh, and look, Tell, tell them we're, about your drive. Oh yeah, I'll tell them the drive here in a second. But let's just let's just agree that we're going to talk in the broadest possible terms about, uh, w you know, where we've been hunting. We don't need to. We don't need to give away all the trade secrets here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But basically, I was supposed to get to California a little bit earlier than I did, and just, you know, I've got, I'm working and doing, just have a family and stuff. So, it ended up that I left about. I think I left at noon on last Tuesday and I needed to be here. Like we needed to be going out from your parents' house at six in the morning mm -hmm. on Thursday. So it was like almost a 30 hour drive and I had 36 hours to do it. I think that's how it worked out. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Maybe. But anyway, so I rolled up, man, but I was sleeping in this van. I'd pull over, get a little shut eye. Uh, it worked out. 
I pulled up at your parents' house at 5.55 <laughs> and uh, got my license purchased and changed my clothes and realized I had been in that van for like 35 out of the last 36 hours and I smelled like it. Uh, yeah, and then that started our turkey tour. So, you know, we were archery hunting there in California. We've been using shotguns here in Oregon. But uh, so just of it, I mean, you know, what a... What's been kind of like your your favorite memory from it, I guess? Ah, man. Uh, There's so many. It's like the whole trip has been one for the... It's been phenomenal. I mean, like like I said the other day, like I'm afraid something bad's going to happen because it's gone so well thus far. Yeah. um, I mean, but like first day we had, we were surrounded by by turkeys. Mobs, yeah. Yeah, just just in them and this is your first archery attempt and so you're trying to figure out the the draw timing and and uh distances and 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 whatnot so you ended up missing your first two turkeys on the first setup yeah yeah hey i want to clarify this (laughs) i whiffed on the first one the second one it was that hole there's a lot of air around him and i skimmed like I scratched the turkey, I just cut a bunch of feathers off. You could see where you, I mean, an inch lower and I was fine. Uh, but yeah, it took a little while to dial it in. And it was just kind of amazing that there was enough opportunities mm-hmm. uh, to do that. Also, man, like that archery is, you're not blowing up the world like you are with the 12 gauge, you know? Yep, yep. Um, there's there's room for, for repeat opportunities, even on the same setup like we saw. Yeah. Um, and so I think the, the biggest thing out of that was you didn't let it take you down. You, you rebounded pretty quick. You learned and maybe two hours later we, you got your first turkey bird and, um, I don't know. There's something about that. A couple of days later, I whiffed on a turkey at like 10 yards <laughs> Yeah, I, I was beating myself up and I was it's part of the game, dude, you know, like it's. Yeah, and I I felt like the way you were you I mean you were really kind of upset with yourself and I totally understand that but man it's gonna happen. And and dude if it's gonna happen 10,000 times better for it to happen in like you whiff mm-hmm. than you know you blow a deer's leg off or something, right? Yeah. So like I whiffed in ways that those animals were all right and then like you said once I got the cuz the first one I was just like physically reacting to that i mean that turkey came right up behind us i'll see it's just big red head i've been thinking about turkeys for a year i did this like fever dream of a drive out here uh like just pounding skittles to stay awake (laughs) and then this thing's going like thunderous next to me and i just like totally whiff uh and then i really felt good about the second shot and i saw those feathers go everywhere and it was just like i just realized i had to be you know I mean, I had to be hitting dimes every time, right? And so, yeah, once I got that dialed in, everything else worked out. But, dude, you're going to miss, mm-hmm. you know? And now it's starting to be to where, like, I'm missing. People see me miss. It, it used to just be my own private lamentations. But, you know, now there's, like, video footage of me missing. And, uh, you know, you you certainly didn't uh, not take the opportunity to tell everybody that I missed. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's got to hey, get out there. Hey, yeah, I mean, I miss too. It's, it's part of the process. Um the best thing we can do is just practice and be proficient with our weapons. 
which in all honesty i haven't been practicing all that much with my bow but when they're at 10 yards it's it's kind of a chip shot unless you're shaking and you're yeah you can't control yourself when there's two of them beating the crap out of the the decoy (laughs) which is a really fantastic thing that i told you man like it's awesome to see that you can still get like that because you have been hunting turkeys for so long on these properties like you know you know you you know that place really well Mm -hmm. you kind of know how the turkeys work you're seeing them from year to year uh but man there is something there's something really special about it it's it's kind of like combining like the beauty of people that are really obsessed with birds and hunting birds, which I'm kind of a bird guy in a lot of ways. It's combining that with, I don't know, the the thrill and the woodsmanship of like big game hunting, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's like a big game bird. It's wild, man. It's It's such a cool, special thing. And every one of those setups ended up being different. And we just got to experience a lot of turkey behavior yeah and i i even was learning a ton too like one of those last setups on the last morning we we set up in a spot where i thought um the turkeys are going to come over the rise and once they're over that rise they were going to be within shooting distance um but they just didn't they didn't want to be there so we learned that um it's well at least in, in that location it would have been better to to be in a location where you could see the turkeys coming in mm-hmm and, um, I mean, we ended up doubling on that day later on, but not out of that setup. So we, we had to correct what we were doing. And, uh, another real cool thing was, was that there was a, a peacock floating around with, with a group of Jake's and making wild sounds. Yeah. Just, we had no idea what was going on. It sounded like a kazoo was going off. And I thought maybe there's somebody trying to get up there and, and spook the, the turkeys off the property or something, but it ended up being a, um, uh, ended up being a, a lone, uh, peacock just floating around with some jakes. So it was, it was pretty cool to see that too. It was when, cause those jakes came out and then that peacock came and it was like taller. It looked like a, like a Dr. Seuss character walking around out there mm-hmm. with him. Uh, man, I kind of think that that second turkey I got in, uh, in California was really, really cool. Like I told you after, I was like, dude, this is like gotta be one of my top three hunts, right? Mm-hmm. But then that last bird, uh, that river turkey was really cool because we came, we got to Oregon on Sunday, kind of lunchtime. A few hours before dark, we went out. Jimmy got this new boat and uh, we ran the river and just got out kind of beached it uh jimmy stepped up and called just a little bit and immediately he got a gobble back and he just turned and looked at me and his face was like you know this combination of surprise and just joy and anticipation right and so we actually had we were wearing uh sick gear and we were toting shotguns so we ran down dropped off into this timber long story short this bird worked really well and gobbled for two hours and uh, we just never got a shot at it, right? Like it just didn't come in all the way. So we backed out of there. We figured he was going to the roost. We backed out of there. We came back with a plan a couple of days later, saw the bird strutting at the edge of the river as we were getting there, looped around, went in there, 
uh, found this uh, this big log to, that was kind of washed out underneath that we could sit down in and mostly cover ourselves up. And uh, two very little short call sequences and then like 45 minutes or an hour or so of waiting. And that bird didn't make a peep until the last three minutes. And then he just gobbled his way all. He was right there and he gobbled his way all the way in behind us. Uh, I could only see him for part of his walk in. And then Jimmy could see him from the other side because of the angles we were at. And, you know, Jimmy had to tell me when he's like, he's on the decoys. He's like, okay, you can move your head really slowly. And so I move my head slowly. I see him. That bird turns, puts his fan up and turns backwards. And I'm able to pull my shotgun up. And as soon as he comes back around, you know, we get him. And it happened so quick. And it was this bird that we had found and went in there and specifically tried to get that bird. And kind of uneventful for most of it. And then, but I mean, you know, we went in there and, that second time and maybe an hour and a half after we got there like we had that turkey and it was just the whole narrative of it like all these different hunts you know and and then going in this you know somewhat unconventional way uh to get after this turkey that anybody else could have got after mm -hmm. right that wasn't like a permission deal that wasn't like having a really awesome private land spot uh, to be on which we've had this trip uh Man, yeah, and I felt too like we had been doing it. Uh, we had been doing it so much, uh, or hunting together so much the last week that we had kind of keyed in. Like, so you kind of know how the other person's going to move. You know, like how to get their attention. Uh, and I felt like that bird. I felt like that last bird was as collaborative a turkey like someone's got to pull if one person's going to pull the trigger but i felt like it was totally a collaborative bird you know what i mean like even into like what we could see uh so that's probably my favorite one well on the last bird you're the only one who who would have had the shot because my shotgun was sitting like 15 feet away from mm -hmm. us at that point i had i'd crawled out of the hole that i was in to try to figure out where that that tom had gone because we hadn't heard him for such a long time and so i crawled up and i was I was trying to glass him up and he wasn't on the same little corner where he was with his hens. So got up next to, to Jonathan and pulled out my phone to try to figure out which way he had, he had gone. And, um, the sun started to hit us and we're getting warm again first thing in the morning. And, um, I was in my head, I was thinking this is time that we should probably go pick up those decoys and go try to relocate that that turkey yeah we were going to try and get more aggressive and mm -hmm. we even said you were like well we'll give them what did you say i think you said like we'll give them uh 20 more minutes and he said no we'll give them 10 more minutes and yeah. then we'll make a move yep and so that 10 minute mark was running up and like seconds away from me standing up that tom sounded off behind us and he was looking for looking for the hand that we were presenting to him mm -hmm. and yeah we, i literally called twice it was one call when I was setting up the decoys right on top of the decoys. And then after about 20 minutes of waiting there, um, I pulled out a diaphragm call and, and kind of angled it away from the direction I knew he was in or thought he was in. And that was it. And we sat there for another 45, 50 minutes. And then it was like, yeah, three minutes that he, from the first gobble to when he was in at the decoys, it happened quick. But man, he was so pretty. He never really got red. His face stayed this is that's kind of what's burned into my head he stayed in this 
blue white head, but he was gobbling this very soft gobble. Uh, and he, he's just, like I said, he was like the Rudy of turkeys, beautiful, gorgeous bird. Like perhaps the prettiest bird of the whole trip. Right. Mm -hmm. But definitely smaller, like compact, but his tail was great. He wasn't beat up his, he had just like a moderate beard, but it was like perfect. His spurs were short. I mean, they were definitely spurs. He wasn't a Jake. He was a mature bird. Mm -hmm. uh, but just everything was a smaller proportion. He was like, I don't know, maybe like a 75% bird or something, right? Yeah, I mean, he was probably 15, 16 pounds compared to some of the birds we were getting were closer to 20. I mean, dude, felt massive. And some of those California birds had like inch and a half spurs on them. Yeah, yeah. Uh but man, he was just so pretty and so perfect. And he came in, and I like the only regret I have is that we don't have that on film because it was so awesome. <laughs> the coolest thing for me was being able to put the first turkey on my new boat. Yeah, that was that was cool. Uh, definitely something I'll I'll never forget. Dude, it, and then there's like bald eagles flying. Around. We're driving yeah, yeah. out there. There's bald eagles flying above us, and then we jump this. I don't know, probably like a six pack of Canada's and then they're all honking and flying next to us. And, you know, shit, I stood up on the front of that boat and stuck my arms out, you know, I, you're I looking like it. Rose. From, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Titanic. Titanic. <laughs> That's right, man. Uh, but yeah, man, super special trip. It's been really fun. I've been sleeping in this van, which has been real comfy. Um, and, but you know, we've been relatively comfortable too, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I was parked outside of your parents' house for a couple of days, and then we uh, spent one night just like pulled off in the National Forest driving up, and then we've I've been parked outside your shop or in your driveway for the last five days or so, uh, and man, just been just been a bomber trip. Uh, so here's kind of what I've actually been thinking about. So I think that's fun, but like no one wants to just hear about our turkeys over and over again. Uh, and I know that when you guys get on podcasts, it's, uh, I bet you guys get asked the same questions just a ton, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so I want to do a kind of succinct description of what you guys are doing, what Hunters of Color is, like what's the mission statement. And then, uh, you know, a big part of what's been cool about this trip is that uh, we're all friends and uh, we can you know kind of in some ways like maintain these unusual uh or non-traditional spaces in like the hunting space or the hunting industry so we've just got like experiences we can share and talk about and compare and contrast uh what's also really cool about it is uh you know this is a you know this is what this is a friendship of of people who uh I mean, it might not be quite generational, like a generation difference, but it's approaching that, right? Mm -hmm. So Jimmy's 26, Lydia's 27, I'm 39. Lydia has made it very clear that I'm essentially petrified at this point. <laughs> that I come from another generation that doesn't understand the way modern people think. And coupled that with the fact that I live in, you know, Arkansas, I... I just don't know anything. I don't know anything about wine, <laughs> which I didn't know anything about wine, but now I've 
found that I'm a rosé gal. Uh, I like the bubbles. I'm not, all right saying that. Uh, but yeah, we've been having all these like just really intense philosophical discussions, which I so appreciate. And uh, they're like the kind of discussions where, you know, they, they never get to a point where you're mad at the other person, but I have felt some irritation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> towards Jimmy, right? You know, towards both of us. Uh, but, you know, I've tried to pacify it with hot chocolates from uh, Dutch Brothers, uh, the winery, you know, and just remind, remind everybody I'm a good guy. But some of these conversations, I think especially the one we had yesterday, was, was so enlightening to me, you know, and it really impressed upon me. You know, you, everyone's talking about how it's important to have – uh, have friends that don't think the same as you and you know, have different perspectives, right? And we're always framing that in terms of race, I think largely, like race or maybe maybe secondary, secondarily to that, maybe that would be class. But this is really imparted to me that, you know, uh, generational perspectives, right? That's super important. So, uh, yeah. So I'm, I want to lead into this saying I've, I've, I've really enjoyed some of these conversations. Uh, and it, what's important about it is to have convos with folks that you really like and respect to start with so that you don't get caught up in the someone thinks differently than me so they're a bad person because you already think they're a good person, mm -hmm. right? Keep that crap out of the way and then you actually can begin to uh, you already are in a position of empathizing with this person because you like them or you love them or you care about them in some way, right? Mm -hmm. So then you start looking at why they might think differently than you and it not be an indictment of their character, right? Uh, so anyway, uh, Lydia, you are one of the founders and the executive director of Hunters of Color. So rap to me. Tell me about, tell me about what you're doing and... Uh, what hunters of colors uh, starting to accomplish and wanting to accomplish more of. Okay. Segal, segal, guagal. Lydia Ancats. My name is Lydia. I'm the executive director. Correctly, as Jonathan put. Um, and we founded Hunters of Color um, early in, or around in, 20, in 2020, um, when it was kind of the idea that Jimmy and our friend Thomas, who mentioned earlier, who was out on the turkey tour last year, um, came together and and kind of talked about shared experiences, lived experiences um, of feeling either alone uh, when they're out in the hunting woods or or not seeing anyone else who, who looked like them or could relate to them cultural cult culturally or um, or otherwise and and kind of wondering what that was. Um, and around the same time, a demographic study came out from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that showed that 97% of hunters identified as uh, as white. And so again, Jimmy, as you alluded to earlier, uh, you've, you've got to see how his brain works and how he thinks. And he's an engineer by trade. He's a degree in engineering from Oregon State University. And go Beavs. Go, go Beavs. Yeah. And so um, Jimmy right away as an engineer thought, huh, 97% of hunters identify as white, the U.S., um, as a total, I think it's 60, now it's 60.4% of the total population identifies as white. So where is that discrepancy? What's happening? What created this disparity? And so right away as an engineer, he started working to solve a problem, just like any other math problem. 
And so um, between he and Thomas and I, we got to work. Um, I had background in um, nonprofit management. Um, so I took on some of the more, you know, getting our 501c3, getting us up and running um, to be a uh, to be an actual employer in the state of Oregon, um, to become a nonprofit. And Thomas was really integral in getting our uh, website up off the ground, um, getting some footage and some photos from turkey hunts. And um, and Jimmy's really, I mean, this is his, this is his brainchild um, that Hunters of Color came out of just because he's an engineer, because he went to work to try to, to try to solve a problem. And um, and so in in doing that, we we came up with Hawk Hunters of Color um, to create equitable spaces and opportunities for people of color to participate in hunting and conservation, with the vision of a hunting community that accurately represents the demographics of the United States, which, as we all know, are very it's very diverse. Um, we were even talking about that before this podcast. You know, you're talking about friends from all different backgrounds married into one family, um, and and how beautiful that is that we live in a country where that's that's possible. And we all have, all have different experiences, but um, like we were talking about, even with some of these <laughs> debates and intergenerational um, conversations or um, cultural or what have you, how how important it is to have that diversity of thought. And I think that that applies to anything. Um, conservation is one of the areas where it's also lacking. And so anyways, that's our, um, probably not as succinct as you want. I apologize. No, but. no, I think it did a fantastic job. Gave it a little more flavor uh, than I even anticipated. And I'll add the, the caveat that, so although I was the, the one who initially had the thought, like I would not have been able to, to create the organization or get it off the ground alone. Um, it did take, Lydia and Thomas coming together to to really manifest this into to what it's become. Um, my back, like my nonprofit background, is I volunteered for Ducks Unlimited because growing up I was a big duck hunter. Um, I wanted to give back. A strong ethic of of giving back was instilled in me by my mom. And um, but Geraldine, what's up? Yeah, <laughs> hey mom. Um, and so. Uh, but when you volunteer for Ducks Unlimited, at least the way I volunteered was you put on these banquets and you're helping with the fundraising aspect of their organization. And, um, and so that was, that was great. I, I felt like I was doing my part in, in conserving, uh, wetlands and, um, but I had no experience with the actual management portion of a nonprofit. Um, and so that's where, where Lydia came in and, uh, we, we originally were like, let's look and see who else is doing this. There's got to be somebody doing it, right? Like we're we're kind of late to the game too. It's 2019 when we were like really talking about it heavily. Um, the I mean, I first talked about it in 2016 when I saw the study, but I didn't really like it wasn't burning holes in my brain until 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're like, there's got to be somebody doing something like this, and and there wasn't. And so that's when we all decided that something needs to be done. And then, so that's like, I mean, months later we had, uh, the website going, we had, um, social medias going. And then, um, we had applied for our our nonprofit status, like maybe three months after we incorporated as a company in Oregon. So it, it was quick. And then we gained traction pretty quickly. And, 
um, and last year also well, my role with the organization is I'm the, the programs director. So I run, um, all of our programs and they fit under three umbrellas, which are education, mentoring and conservation. Um, and so I oversee a lot of that. And this year, uh, or last year we were able to get 58 new hunters out on a minimal budget, um, with COVID going on. And this year we, we aim to either triple or potentially even quadruple that number. Oh, wow. Um, and we're, we're just trying to reconnect people to, to their hunting heritages. Um, if we're all here, uh, if you are, you are alive today, your ancestors hunted at some point. Um, and depending on when your ancestors decided to, to put away the tradition or, um, or removed from the hunting tradition, uh, we just want to reconnect everybody and be able to have experiences like we just had this last week. Because I mean, even if it weren't for the organization, if I was just a part of this, like that would be, I'd carry this the rest of my life and I will carry this the rest of my life. Just being able to be like, Hey, my buddy, Jonathan came out from Arkansas, drove 36 or yeah, 36 hours to make it out to California made it, made it there in five minutes with five minutes to spare. Um, so yeah, uh, that's the, that's the motive behind the organization and kind of in a nutshell and, um, the way we achieve, uh, getting people into, um, ultimately conservation work is, is through educational, uh, opportunities and, and mentorship opportunities where, um, you're, you're given a head start into, the the realm of hunting and um yeah we just hope that uh more people find their way into to giving back to the resource that we love and and even if you don't want to hunt um just giving back to natural resources and making sure that there's more wildlife out there that's that's what it's all about jonathan you got a little glimpse at our mentorship program um, this past year when we came out to Black Duck Revival, had a great time um, hunting speck bellies and, and uh, snows with you. And um, you got to meet some of our mentees. And so you saw a little bit of that in action. I did, man. It's a good time. Real good time, actually. And a real special place, man. And, you know, what's your you've, uh, affinity groups? You know, it was like an affinity, affinity group. Healthy appetites on those boys, too. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I told Jimmy, it's the first time all my little Debbies got uh, got eaten before the end of the trip. Um, all right, so described our hunt. We've done the elevator pitch of Hunters of Color. We'll talk more in specifics about that, I imagine, in the podcast. But, uh, all right, so we're going to keep this civil. But I do want to delve a little bit into uh, I've just been so struck with how I'm I'm at a different place in my life than you guys are. You know, like I've got two little kids. I've got I mean, you guys have a house. You're very accomplished. But I've just, you know, I've kind of. You know, perhaps I'm lamenting it, but I've, I've, I've calmed down, you know, I feel like in the last decade, I used to be, 
and I still feel like I'm very passionate about things that are important to me, but there used to be a freneticism to it uh, that was, that I think became, for me personally, I'm going to talk about it. I think it, it started to limit some of my effectiveness and also like took some joy out of my life. Uh, and, you know, just didn't let me, I, I just wasn't allowing myself to, you know, to really enjoy and appreciate life in the way I wanted to. And I think it's, I've, I don't have a, I have to do that. Like if I want to be a good dad, I've got to be happy and nice enough to be a good dad and be patient and stuff. Right. So anyway, but you know, I guess you could say like, I'm, I mean, I, I definitely feel like I came up identifying with uh, counterculture and I've always been an envelope pusher, you know, like uh, I'm sure if you found people that have known me earlier in my life, they would be like, man, this guy was an agitator. Right. And so like, I like that and I respect that. And I don't think that respectability uh, and getting along is always uh, the righteous path. Right. Like uh, that said, I'm more settled than I used to be. Right. So, uh, you guys uh, are fun to be around because there's, and we'll just be honest, man, specifically with our good friend Lydia here, man. There's, uh, there's that, you know, youthful want to make huge substantive changes uh, and want to keep momentum going, right? And, that's exactly, I, I think that's that's exactly as needed. Like, you've got to have that, right? Uh, and then, I'm trying to speak so carefully about this, and I'm about to stop and just talk like we've been talking. But, you know, I found, uh, I just found, uh, I found some circumstances where I was kind of surprised because I saw that I was being viewed as, like, stodgy or, or uh, complacent or something in some way. Uh, and so uh, my first instinct was to be like, oh, I am not. You don't understand, right? And then you start getting deeper into each other's experiences and opinions on stuff, and it's you're not really saying things that are terribly dissimilar, right? But a lot of this is a stylistic difference. And I think that without getting preachy, I think a lot of people have way more in common with other folks than they realize, and they're getting caught up on stylistic differences. Mm -hmm. And you can't exist in a place where you simultaneously, uh, and I'm talking about America, you're, you're constantly talking about how the stylistic differences in people are a strength to this country, right? Music, art, idea expression that you can have a country where you have cowboys and and surfers and shopkeepers and orthodox religious people and people that worship satan just like whatever this the gamut is right uh and so it was it, it was such a good reminder to me of that that you you know don't get caught up in stylistic differences right uh 
And what like is so helpful about it is, like I said, we have this base level of respect and liking each other. So you can keep your hurt feelings out of it a little bit more, right? And kind of to me, like talk like a grown up a little bit. Because people, people just inherently become childish when they disagree. Mm-hmm. You know, and like, so the, the struggle in it is uh, trying to be a grown up. So all that said, there's going to be a lot of terms that are getting used right now, right? We've, I've heard you say manifest, right? There's been like intersectionality, whatever. Those are terms that I understand are almost triggering to some people, mm-hmm. right? It, it is displaying like an immediate difference in life considerations. And so it's going to make folks want to tune out. Ah, oh, you know, here's a, they're talking about race. They're talking about all these, uh, these, these catchphrases uh, or words that I associate with folks that I vehemently disagree with. Uh, but I think that, you know, most people would say that, that love hunting, that have found benefit to this way of life, would say that they want other people to experience that too. Mm-hmm. And that what they want most would be that for it to continue, mm-hmm. right? And not to stop with a, you know, a generation or two past even me, Lydia. Uh, that, you know, is, I mean, we're losing, I mean, we are losing hunters. As a community, the percentage of people in America that identify as hunters, who identify as outdoors people, right? That have these, I'm going to say woodsmanship skills, and I understand that there's probably a more inclusive way of saying that, but I can't think of one right now. Uh, those generations are, they're kind of like stag, there's a stagnation there, and there's not a recruitment of an equal number of people that are leaving, right? Mm-hmm. So that means if you love this thing and you want it to continue, out of necessity, out of nothing but necessity, if you want to boil it down to that, take morals, take ethics, take the way you should think. Just if you want it to continue, there's going to be, there's going to have to be recruitment of people. Mm-hmm. They're coming from uh, different populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, because those populations have already been exposed to it and they're choosing not to. So you've got to broaden the net, right? Mm-hmm. So that means people are going to speak differently than you. They're going to perhaps dress differently. They're going to look differently. They're going to see the world differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're going to find places where you agree with them and you're going to find places where you don't. Uh, and so I'm not trying to put a, we all got to get along. Cause I don't think that like there are people I don't, I think they are so wrong that I do think their character has come into things. And I'm not just talking about politically. I'm talking about just however they live their life. Right. I'm not going to somebody who's routinely going out and killing 50 elk a year with, uh, with some illegal firearm Mm -hmm. for, and leaving them lay. I mean, I'm not aware of this happening, but that person, I'm not going to say, well, we disagree on the way that we hunt, but we're both hunters. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like I'm engaged in something different than that person. But I'd be interested to hear, and I'm kind of thinking specifically from start off with Lydia, but how, where are you seeing places where there seems like there's, where are you hitting walls? Mm -hmm. And do you think some of it is from these broader interpretations 
you know, that people are immediate, they immediately are pigeonholing you or what you're trying to do or your intentions or how you see the world and being resistant to working together or, um, yeah, I guess working together. Yeah. And before I, I touch on a couple of those, um, barriers as I would call them, um, I think what you were alluding to, um, moments ago is really important in the conversations that we've had, but we've disagreed, um, oftentimes it comes down to semantics, right? Oftentimes it comes down to how I'm saying something and then we end up, you know, talking about that same topic for 10 minutes and realizing that we're kind of saying the same thing. We're, we're actually on the same side. It's just how I said something or how I came to that conclusion might not be the same as you. And I think that that room for nuance is so important in any conversation, in any relationship, um, in our proximity to one another. And I think that that's what's that's what's missing when we have those, you know, the trigger reactions to to each other, to things that are said, um, to when we um, when we perceive a difference in someone, and that comes from all different sides, all different walks of life, and all different angles. You know, to immediately and accidentally that implicit bias, right? That 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 subconscious reaction to some things and, and assuming things about people that takes away our ability to have nuance and to have proximity with someone or to even build a relationship with someone to be able to care about why they care about things, how their worldview is so different than yours, perhaps, and, and then what's important to them. Um, and so I've really appreciated these conversations, too. I think Jimmy's appreciated that I'm not bugging him about, you know, if there is a, a Tao, a moral right and wrong that exists in the universe. Jonathan's here for a couple of days and I can bug him about it instead. Um, yeah, it's, this has really been Jimmy getting me here to be a heat sink. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, I think that that's all really important. And it also alludes to, um, here's a fun one for you. I do an anti-racism training. And that even is a word in and of itself that people either are like, well, what is that? Or, uh -oh. Are you teaching people or are you uh, taking instruction? Um, we, we've we developed it with the board to teach people. Okay. Just as a basis of, of why we do what we do um, and and how, how important it is to be able to relate to one another in a respectful way um, for the sake of the natural resources, like Jimmy mentioned, for the sake of these traditions, like you mentioned, um, and how that might require us setting aside differences by understanding each other, by knowing knowing those differences um, and, and recognizing how we can actually relate to each other. So two of the things that we start out with, um, the first agreement in this training is we agree that every human being that we meet is worthy of dignity, dignity and respect simply because they're a human being. And there's no caveats to that. There's no, only if you see eye to eye with that person, only if you agree with that person, um, because that's not the case. You can disagree with someone and that person's still worthy of respect. You can disagree with um, their actions, who they love, who they vote for, whatever. And that person is still a human being worthy of respect. And so that's the first agreement. If we can't agree on that, <laughs> then I'm not sure we can move forward with the rest of the conversation. Um, and then the next agreement is that we, we recognize that we all have common ground when we're in the outdoors. We all have common ground when we're talking about things like hunting and conservation. Um, and if we have those two things as a basis, then any other conversation should fall secondary, right? To that need and that understanding that you know, as, as less and less people hunt and as our nation becomes more and more diverse, it's not politics we're talking about. It's not, it's not um, 
whatever words get thrown around. It's not wokeness. It's actual intentionality to making sure that these traditions that we love, that these spaces that we love, that these animals that we love have the people in the next generation who love them and care about them and want these things to continue. Um, and so it's just really the practicality of what we're doing. Um, Jimmy's actually crunched some numbers to see how many people we need to bring into the hunting world before a certain time or else we'll lose the what, whatever $1.6 billion a year that comes from hunting and shooting sports. Um, and I'll let him get to that in a second. But I think that that's, that's one of the biggest issues that we run into is that trigger reaction to people, um, people even reading our name and we get pigeonholed. People read Hunters of Color and we've had people say, oh, is this a political organization? It's too dive, dive, uh, too direct. No, no, no. It's, uh. It's two divisive things at once. Yeah, hunting. You're referencing race and well, you're referencing hunting. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so this is where when I when whenever we apply for funding, you know, there's some there are some social equity organizations and foundations that when we say hunters, they immediately write us off. Yeah. <laughs> then on the other side of things, there's some hunting organizations that when we say of color, they immediately write us off. And it's really frustrating because I think that we're expecting people to bring a level of nuance to the conversation that we've developed over time, over the past three, three years, three or four years of us talking about all of these things and realizing, you know, even our founders, we have a vast array of lived experiences, socioeconomic class, um, you know, genders and, and political backgrounds, all of the above. But we come together on these commonalities and and even our name, though, <laughs> is a barrier in some ways to both sides of the spectrum there. Um, so I think that that's one of the biggest the biggest issues when you say, you know, finding finding ways to relate to people is that I think if people take the time to talk with us, they'll recognize. And just like with most people, you take the time to get to know each other. I always say in proximity is where you see the least disparity, right? Because when you're with other humans and spending time with other humans and getting to care about other humans, that's when you realize that they're humans. <laughs> they're just like us. There's so much more in common than we understand um, from the outside. But anyways, I think that's one of the biggest issues um, that if people, if people take the time instead of those, you know, the triggers that set, set folks off or have you turned off the, turn off the dial the second I say of color or hunters, um, that's what's, that's what's missing from, from the nuance and from the conversations that's going to be able to keep, our traditions alive um, and and to continue on. Uh, you know what you? Uh, I didn't even think about this, but it might it might be helpful to some folks because it was something that was helpful to me when I made the realization. Uh, is I think it's really valuable that uh, I, I find a lot of value in the fact that this is. It's like multicultural in a way. I feel like multicultural from where I've been in my life. Like I've been in Missouri and Arkansas. Like what really what they're talking about, they're talking about black and white, right? Mm. Like and I don't mean I'm not talking about a binary. I'm talking about black people and white people, right? But because you guys are PNWers, right? West Coast, your exposure to to different uh, ethnic groups and races of people is like much more broad than it is in a lot of places in the country, right? So 
you know, neither one of you are black, right? Uh, and I think that's really important because it is it is it is demonstrable of the depth of human experience that we're actually referencing in this country, right? Uh, and it it brings different considerations. Uh, so if you've heard any at the who did I do a podcast with? I think with Natalie Krebs, and I was talking about when I was hanging out with some friends, and I was showing them this movie, uh, Heavyweights, that I love so much, <laughs> right? And had, I had all these fond memories of as a child. And then we get towards like the last 12 minutes of the video, and never even occurred to me that there's 30 people uh, running around with like headdresses on in these buckskin outfits uh, at a summer camp, you know, and Lydia is. Uh, very proudly uh, indigenous, right? Perhaps even woke indigenous, right? And so then I've brought this thing into her house that is, uh, I mean, you know, I was I was humiliated. I felt like ashamed. I felt so unaware, right? Uh, which is which was such a positive experience for me ultimately because Lydia was, uh, you know, had a lot of grace and didn't, uh, didn't tell me I was a terrible person cause I made that mistake. Right. And we like, but we, we stopped watching it. Uh, and it even, it just can, it changed considerations I make even to a point to where been there. So there was, I've been doing signing up for these little half marathon things or whatever. And there was one that I decided not to because, uh, the representation of it is like a big headdress situation, right? And I know that it, I, or I assume it's, you know, I don't think anyone's was really trying to be derisive of Native Americans with it, but they're not being considerate. And I just thought I was like, man, I couldn't, uh, I can't go do that and like get that T-shirt and then like wear it around Lydia. I was like, so maybe I just don't need to do it. You know, I just go run someplace else. Mm -hmm. And it was, I, mean, I'm, I don't think that's a life-changing uh, uh, perspective to, to take on anything, but it is, it is a demonstration of how meeting somebody and caring about somebody who has a different worldview than you is impacting just kind of daily stuff, right? Kind of some of maybe the smaller decisions the not big look at me decisions. Uh, but th then I got on a podcast and told everybody about it. So <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> there's some hypocrisy there. But. I think that one of the reasons that, I mean, first of all, I think that showing grace in, in instances of ignorance are, is the only way forward. <laughs> um, when, when you yell at people, um, you don't change very many minds. Um, but I think that having conversation, having nuanced conversation around things like that um, are really important. And I think that but also one of the things that I remember you saying, I think before we watched that, that movie with the headdress scene, was that I was the first person in your life who brought the concept of indigeneity to modernity to you know today real life in 2021 or 2022 whatever it was um yeah i was aware but not you know but just like 
peripherally. Right. And so, and so that's what I mean about the importance of relationship, right? The importance of being in proximity to one another to, I always also say you can't care about something you don't know about. And that seems like the most, you know, simplistic, menial way to say it, but it's true. Um, and if, if you and I hadn't met, or if, um, if you hadn't, if I wasn't indigenous, then you might not have even thought about that, you know, watching that, watching that movie. Um, and so I think that that proximity is really important. And I think it also then allows you to have those conversations. Well, why haven't I met very many indigenous folks? What, what is it? And then looking at the history of Arkansas, looking at the history of, of that part of the world uh, where the Trail of Tears, the, the, the famous Trail of Tears was um, enacted and pushed through to Oklahoma. And so you know a lot of the history of the tribes in your area. Um, I know the Quapaw and the Zicado and, um, a couple other tribes in that area. Yeah, yeah they're kind of all over life. Like the Cherokee were down there, the mm -hmm. Chickasaw. Uh, but, but very much so have been removed. And so that's part of part of what I talk about, too. Osage. Is, yeah. Part of what I talk about, too, is that, um, you know, we're, we're still here. Indigenous folks, we're still here. Um, we're not some, you know, mystical figment of imagination, the stoic stoic brave indian um we're very much still here and we come from a very proud history and lineage and a lot of and a lot of hurt too and a lot of heartache um and so very in in, in your region of the world it makes sense that you wouldn't come in contact with too many indigenous folks because of that mass forced removal to yeah like people Oklahoma. were rounded up yes. and then death marched marched upwards of, of three thousand miles men women and children bare feet um and no food in the winter. Yeah. yeah. It was, I mean, really, 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 really bad. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a sophisticated segue for this. <laughs> uh, it's also, it's part of why hunting is really important to me. Um, this yeah, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, do that. This can be a segue. That helps me out. We'll let you talk to Jimmy. Go, go ahead, Lydia. But my indigeneity is part of why hunting is really important to me. And I've shared many times, I didn't grow up hunting. Um, I grew up fishing. I teach you a thing or two about bass fishing out here on the Willamette River, Jonathan. Um, but I didn't, didn't grow up hunting. Uh, my dad, so my dad's indigenous and my mom is white. And my dad actually grew up in a city away from the reservation where 71% of indigenous people do live in urban centers now. And he had that disconnect from his culture where he had he didn't grow up hunting and so it's actually my mom's side of the family that that hunted actually for subsistence there were 14 kids this big irish <laughs> irish catholic family um 14 kids and, and eating elk and, and and fishing was the way to stay alive out here in oregon um but it was it's this reconnection that my dad had to go through in order to bring my sister and I into our culture and to understand how important it is to us to be Mohawk and to be proud Ganyangayaka um, or Haudenosaunee. And I think that the more time I spend around folks in my tribe, um, the more the more passion I have. You mentioned my, my passion earlier, I think is a nice way to, to say it. But the dr more drive that I have to do this work because um, I was in a group with some members from my tribe a couple months ago. We were working with um, a tribal historian, and he was pulling out flint, flint napped arrowheads from 5,000 years ago. Um, that just, I mean, amazing to look at, right? And to see, you know, this tradition of hunting 
it, it isn't new <laughs> by any means. Like Jimmy said, it's in all of our ancestry. But to see that and to, to see, you know, to be able to, I, I was able to go on a whitetail hunt um, with Hunters of Color. We, we host an event in, in New York on Mohawk land. And to be there, to be hunting was just, I mean, incredible because my family's been hunting there for since the beginning of time is how we'd say it, since Sky Woman fell. Um, but that that part of my identity is what helps drive this need for connection to culture, for connection to ceremony. Um, you actually, Jonathan and, and Jimmy, were able to participate in, in, in helping some some friends who are Coast Miwok um, continue ceremonies by giving giving some of the turkey feathers. And, and I don't know if you did, a, you skinned them, gave the whole pelt to them. But, um, but that's really important to me too. Um, and that sense of identity that comes with connection to the land and to the animals that are so important to our histories and our, our creation stories. Um, and the last thing that I'll say about that is I was in another um, training for indigenous executive directors, indigenous nonprofit leaders recently through the Seventh Generation Fund, which I was very grateful for. And one of the executive directors towards the end of the, of the program was talking about something that you mentioned yesterday, how we need to take care of ourselves the way that we would care for a loved one. And that's a hard concept for a lot of us. People who, people who spend their time working with others or people who are just you know, empathetic in general, um, it's kind of a hard concept to think about, you know, I'm, gonna put, I'm gonna take care of myself so that I can take care of other people. And that is, it's one of the hardest things that Jimmy has to try to get me to work on, to take care of myself, to put the computer down after 12 hours of work, to get outside, to go shoot my bow, you know? Um, but she also, she also said that if we don't do this work, who suffers? And in this indigenous circle, this community, it's, it's, I think that she did, she, she did work for, um, for, it was like a food uh, security program. So she was feeding folks that didn't have enough to eat. And so in her community, she's like, oh, that's people in my tribe who don't have enough to eat. And so I think that that's something that <laughs> drives that passion you mentioned earlier that makes me want to work hard, that makes me want to do this work is if we don't do this, who's doing it? Um, you know, we've launched into, I think we're in 11 states now in the country and the only nationwide BIPOC-led, BIPOC-serving mentorship program doing this R3 work that's so vital, like we've talked about. Um, and if we don't do it, you know, who does? And so anyways, a little bit of why I'm passionate about it. And I don't think you were saying it in a derogatory way, but <laughs> that's part of what drives it. Oh, no, it. I would never. I would never, Lydia. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, so just real quick to add to that, would you, the idea of taking care of yourself. You know, there's a dude I know, uh, family man now, but back in the day we called him Dirty Sean. And uh, he used to say, treat yourself, don't cheat yourself. You know? And he's living a great life. Got good friends, nice family, good job, you know? But yeah, this that, that mindset of suffering and grinding to you got nothing left to give to the people that deserve the best parts of you isn't a, isn't a good idea. Uh, I'd also say this because... I mean, you know, you switched into uh, an indigenous language for a moment there. You threw around the term BIPOC, right? Which there's probably people listening to this that don't even know what that is. And uh, so that would be like black indigenous people of color. It's a very modern term. Uh, I want to juxtapose some of those stylistic difference, differences and, and say that really to me this is such... 
this is so indicative of like uh, an American story, right? Like this is some real bootstrap shit. So you see something that you care about, that you're passionate about, that you want to be different, that you want to change, right? And so you could change the tenor of this, right? You could change the, the accent on it, right? And to me, it's very much like, well, don't sit around and bitch about stuff. Get up and do something, right? And that's literally what you're doing. You know, you're, uh, it, it, to me, it's, it's just like a super American thing to do. Uh, this idea of, you know, with all the many flaws of this country and the, the lack of execution of things, right? But this idea that you can make things better, that you can, that with want to and effort, you can impact whatever sort of change it is you want, right? Just something that's like super important to me and really resonant in my mm -hmm. life, uh, and yeah, man, it just—I just—I think it's worth emphasizing that that's super American, and that there's different ways to be one, and that that's worth protecting too, right? Uh, yeah, Jimmy, you've you've gotten on a podcast with two of the more loquacious people <laughs> mm -hmm. on planet earth. So do you have anything you'd like to say? What did I tell you and Thomas that, that Jonathan literally just said almost word for word? Uh, yeah. Lydia was like, stop freaking talking about it and do something about it. And so Lydia was the one who actually bought the hundreds of color, um, URL or like the, the yeah, website, the domain, the domain yeah. name. And, uh, that's what, sparked it that's like that was the catalyst to creating the organization and it was thomas and i would have just sat there yeah flicking our thumbs around just trying to figure out uh <laughs> basically the story of anybody who's ever had uh, a good woman behind him man yeah yeah exactly get off your ass and do something about it <laughs> <laughs> i think that might have been word for word actually I yeah bet you it was yeah um but i mean the first time we ever heard you speak we were Lydia and I were hanging out in the sun, and it was a podcast with you and Clay Newcomb. No, no. Paint the picture, because I really want them to understand <laughs> how millennial and West Coast you guys are. Okay, oh, okay. So. so we're, we're according to Jonathan, we're elite West Coasters. No, no. They just, <laughs> these folks had never heard the term coastal elite. I was hoping oh, this oh. wouldn't come up, because now it's stuck in my head again. <laughs> the coastal elite. They just had never heard of it. So we're being super elite in our $30 Walmart <laughs> pop-up swimming pool. Yeah, uh... We're we're uh, munching on some frozen. Uh, Have you looked around here? <laughs> we're looking at a rhododendron farm when you come outside. Yeah, it's a great place to park a van. Oh yeah, beautiful. <laughs> Peeing next to the garage in the mornings, and it's just a gorgeous, uh, gorgeous P and W view. But go ahead, yeah. So you guys are <laughs> you guys are what twenty four years old chilling in a walmart pool yeah having, um, a, having a glass of wine or something uh, maybe or uh, an otter pop or something frozen yeah. because it was <laughs> an otter pop. <laughs> it was uh really hot out and um you and clay got to to talking about how hunters do hard things we have like if 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 you would have just given up after that first turkey you shot at just like this is too much i'm done i'm Driving back to Arkansas, <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't. I, I'd we wouldn't kick have, my own ass. Yeah. 
<laughs> we wouldn't have had the the experiences and we wouldn't I mean we have a freezer full of turkey meat right now and and we're going home with loaded coolers so um we wouldn't we wouldn't have gotten past that that first miss um and we yeah we we just do hard things we um we have hard conversations and um we learn from we well at least we try to learn out of every outcome uh for instance to tie it back to to this this week um uh, i mean i've been hunting turkeys since i was 12 years old or something like that and i was still learning on this trip learning different setups like what went right and what went wrong um there was a time when when jonathan had a turkey at like 12 yards but he like he wouldn't commit any further just because he didn't want to go downhill like yeah. he, he was up above he could see the the decoy and, and i had to like i had to whip around a bush and then get up in it like i for 30 minutes i needed the two more yards for him to come mm-hmm. to the right two more yards and because i didn't he might as well has been he, i mean he could have been 100 yards away he was just as far yeah you know and it's it's hard to keep your composure during things like that too. Like your heart was probably pumping out of your chest. I know what mine was where I was at. Yeah, and you're like physically uncomfortable. You're like wrenching yourself. Like we were yeah, even talking yeah. about like why are our bleaks hurt? Yeah. It's <laughs> strained so hard not moving. Yeah. Uh yeah, but so like we're already doing hard stuff, so it, it's a great transferable skill, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think uh, the to bring it back to like the, the barriers is why do you most people say like they'll they'll be like, "Why do you gotta make it about race?" It's just hunting's hunting. Like you don't have to bring that into the conversation. Well, you don't. But everybody has lived experiences that are different, and if we have more people who are different than us in the fold, uh, actively working on bettering the community and and the resources, we're gonna be better for it. Um, like across the board. Across the board, yeah. There, there's gonna be. Um, I mean, for instance, up here, like, uh, if we had more, uh, it's called traditional ecological knowledge, which is just, uh, using indigenous science, um, to better the forests around here, we'd be using a lot more fire to control the fires that we have, um, these, this last few years where we have like these just massive wildfires that just take over and destroy everything in their in their their wake um if we were using the best available knowledge we'd be doing doing prescribed burns we'd be doing using all the tools on the table but there are uh, uh, voices and um there's perspectives perspectives. that don't get that don't get the attention yep exactly and so um when if we love the resource we want hunting to persist. The best way to do that is to pass on the passion. So if you have a child, a grandchild, anybody in your immediate immediate circle to pass that on to, that's how you're going to continue the legacy. Um, but there is a statistic that, that shows that 73% of white people have all white circles. So if you're a white hunter if you fit in that 73% of people, um, the chances of you passing on your hunting traditions and your knowledge and your expertise to somebody who looks differently than you, who comes from a different background, 
is super minimal. Uh, the chances are, are nil. So um, what we are trying to do with our mentorship program, what we have done, is we are reconnecting people to that, that tradition so that one day they can pass it on to their uh, circle of influence, their descendants, their, there'll be a hunting ancestor that passed it on. Um, You're also building, like, like actually building bridges and between different people, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that, that, you know, that, I don't know what the term is. Grow, I, was, I, I like the word metastasize, but that's so specific to like cancer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, blossom, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man, you're bringing a bunch of different folks together, which isn't just, it's not just feel good, right? It, it actually is strengthening uh, these institutions. Mm hmm. Right. And not just strengthening them, it's lowering the temperature. It's lowering the social uh, and emotional temperature, which is real important. Because you can't just say, like, you've got to talk to people that are different than you if, if everyone's at a fever pitch. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Hanging out with somebody and like liking them and both being excited because a turkey came in, like, that'll bring the temperature way down. Mm hmm. Right. And then you can just absorb someone's different, different life through osmosis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah. What do you, what do you, you seem like you have something you want to throw into that. Oh, I was just going to say that what Jimmy just touched on is really important because if you listen to most hunting podcasts or watch most hunting shows, people will often reference their their grandpa or grandma or um, dad, or uncle who got them into hunting. And there's often a kind of a paternalistic line. It's it's passed down from grandpa to dad and dad to son and, sure. and it's passed down generation to generation. And that's beautiful and I love that and that's so great. And if that doesn't exist because someone's grandpa doesn't hunt or grandma doesn't hunt, um, then that that that's never gonna happen. That's never gonna be self-fulfilling, right? And so what Jimmy's talking about and what our mentorship program goal is, is we say to create surrogate families that do hunt. Um, and so where someone might not have that, that paternal line or, or familial line to hunting, let's say, we can then bring in a grandpa sort of figure, you know, somebody who does, who's been around, who's been in in the hunting game forever, for a long time, and they can share that knowledge with a younger, or even sometimes it's a, a peer, um, with, with someone who just doesn't, they're young, a young hunter, they don't have the hunting experience. And so that's been one of the most beautiful things I think about the mentorship program is watching some of these folks, um, like I mentioned the, the New York whitetail hunt that we did, watching our mentees and mentors still it's been it's been almost a year since that hunt and just this last week they're sending us pictures deep sea fishing with their mentors uh last last week and they've gone out ice fishing and um they went on a rabbit hunt together in the in the snow no one knows why they went out it was like negative 10 degrees they're like buddies now yes yeah. Yeah. we've yeah. created a, a family and that's that's the that's the proof of concept right there that's the goal and 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 who knows if they all would have gotten along otherwise, but what you're saying, Jonathan, is bringing everyone together, having that common ground in the outdoors and, and, and the pursuit um, of hunting and, and wild game. I think that that 
levels the playing field and makes us realize how much we do have in common and how much joy there is to be had in watching a new person experience or a new hunter experience hunting for the first time or fishing for the first time. There's Jimmy often says he has more fun teaching than actually hunting at this point. Well, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not after this week. Yeah. Sometimes I got to get, I got to get uh, some time for myself too, but yeah. Um, otherwise how would he be remind everybody what Jimmy called himself this week? Jimmy may oh. or may not. <laughs> have called himself the turkey king on the one day that you guys didn't get something right uh, i jinxed it but <laughs> <laughs> but i mean i felt like i felt indestructible at that point. <laughs> <laughs> we sat down it was after so jonathan that was, that was actually one of my favorite parts of this entire week was that first gobble on public land when jimmy kind of almost almost jokingly almost nonchalant just hey let me call and see what happens and then instantaneous he calls and then you hear the gobble like instant i mean seconds later that was that day and so it really probably did feel like wow there's something to yeah, this what is going on man? <laughs> yeah. uh, no dude it, it was so much better like that's the one we had to go back for you know what i mean uh dude so so cool so special uh yeah well hey i really appreciate i really appreciate you guys exist uh I I appreciate the broadening of my perspectives and man, this we'll we'll end it here, man. This wine, I mean, so it's probably not a secret that last night I got into the wine. Uh, <laughs> like I had to go to bed in my van at like eight forty-five because, dude, we had a blush, we had a uh, we had a, we had a little sparkly one. Your mother it was your mother's birthday. We made dirty rice and. Uh, some turkey cutlets, mm -hmm. and she had a nice dessert wine. Mm -hmm. There was also there was a little Pinot. Wasn't there a Pinot involvement? Well, yeah, we're here in the Willamette Valley, and so that's kind of what we do. Mm, but it was a Pinot Pinot Gris to to go with the dirty rice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've just got elite Pinots out here, Jonathan. Dude. <laughs> I'll I'll tell you what else is great about this is that Lydia is worse than I am about covering up how she feels, <laughs> and she is so bothered by this coastal lily. I mean, it will haunt her. <laughs> I will hear hear about it again. It, uh, I might make her a t-shirt. <laughs> Turkey King and the Coastal Elite. I'll wear that. Hey, you wear that around? <laughs> Maybe without the Coastal Elite part, but... The, uh, the PNW Turkey King? Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, uh, yeah, man, seriously, thank you guys. I've This is like the second year I've been out here. This, like, y'all's house has seriously become one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, such a great time. Yeah, man, these turkeys don't hurt. These turkeys don't hurt, man. And uh, yeah, we're gonna do a longer. Tur uh, Jimmy and I have talked about we're gonna do a longer turkey tour next year. Uh, you know, some people don't like it. Can't make everybody happy, right, Jimmy? You can't, but uh, you can try. <laughs> yeah, you can't, man. I'm telling you, Just from from one generation to the next. <laughs> <laughs> Stoic. Uh, sage wisdom from jonathan yeah all the people i know in oregon are like way younger than me like the dude i'm gonna go see uh over in east oregon when i met him he told me like at the end of the week and he's like it's so nice to have an older man to talk to <laughs> 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 i was like what <laughs> yeah i guess so is he our age then yeah he's like okay. your age yeah yeah, yeah owns yeah. a ranch I was That's like, cool. dude, I don't Whoa. know anything, man. Like, teach me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 
I mean, yeah. where you're going, they're they're out there thick too. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna try and take everything I learned, go do it by myself in a couple of days, and then off to Montana. We'll see each other next week at yep. BHA Rendezvous. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're hearing this, you come out to Rendezvous. Come say hi. Uh, we'll all be out there. And uh, how do folks get a hold of you? Instagram, website. Uh, you can find us on at huntersofcolor.org. Um, that's where you'll find the most information about the organization. Um, there, there's contact info for, for all of our team members. Um, there you'll find our ambassadors for each state. Um, and then ways to donate, um, to help the cause. You can volunteer, you can sign up to be a mentor, you can sign up to be a mentee. Um, and then our social media, um, that's kind of where we do a lot of like our, our news updates. So you can also sign up for our, our, uh, monthly newsletter, which just gives updates on what the programs are doing. And, and, uh, yeah. Uh, social media is at hunters of color. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, any way you can support, um, whether that's being a follower, a mentor, volunteer, or financially supporting the mission. Um, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. So, um, every donation is tax deductible, um, and we rely heavily on the support of people who believe in the mission and and care about hunting and passing it on to the next generation. Awesome. Well, uh, again, guys, thanks so much, folks. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival Podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. If you're hearing this outro to the podcast, then that means I'm still on the road. I'm still on Turkey Tour 2022. It's been phenomenal so far, and uh, I'm excited to see how it all winds up. Uh, If you'd like to follow along, please do so over at Instagram. The handle is just Black Duck Revival. And if you'd like more information about me, what I'm doing, possibly book a hunt or a fishing trip, just head on over to the website at blackduckrevival.com. Questions, comments, all that stuff you can send to me uh, through the link at the website. And if you guys are enjoying this podcast, like I ask you pretty much every week, please tell somebody, uh, share share it with your friends on social media, any uh, sort of promotion we can get helps out tremendously Uh, and i'm so pumped up and enthusiastic these last few weeks while i've been out on the west coast uh, i've been looking at the numbers and we are getting uh, a significant uh, increase in listeners so thank you so much for everything you guys have been doing thanks for listening and we'll see you next time